You're listening to the West Side Podcast, a part of the L.A. International Church of Christ family of churches, worshiping God in L.A. since 1989. Um, okay, I want to introduce tonight uh, is the final uh, of our history series on finding your place in God's story or in history, his story. And, of course, that is uh, the mantra of the Attorney Point Church, where we're bringing in our guest speaker today. And today we're closing out. It's uh, Black History Month, as all of you are aware. And God has, I believe, worked powerfully through not only the, the pandemic, uh, through all of us being online, but certainly through the uh, just the egregious killing of many African Americans we've seen so visibly, really for, for many, many, many years. But in particular with the death of George Floyd, I think an awakening. At least I, I can speak on behalf of myself. I, I, I needed to see some things I hadn't seen. And I, I think this past year has allowed me to see many things that I needed to see and have the empathy and concern uh, and humility uh, to, to really lament some of the pain that's been out there. And I think it's really right for us as a church to keep growing. And as Jesus said, uh, we are to love as he loved, right? My, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And that call to each of us as disciples is to really care for each other, to feel uh, the pain and to feel the victories that each of us go through. And so I asked Kevin to come on today. Kevin has his master's from Harding University uh, in Christian ministry and has done an extensive reading on the church history with regard to race relations. And this is not uh, really going to be a lesson on, on all the victories of our great successes in race relations. As you study some of the books, I read a book uh, by Tisby called The Color of Complicity, and uh, Kevin recommended that. And he's going to hit on a lot of that. I want us today to be open-hearted and understand that in studying history, we have to understand really where the church has landed on what we're seeing right now, which is kind of inspiring, is we're almost in the, the we're in the uh, the stages of a new civil rights movement, a needed one. There's a click forward, I believe, that God has allowed for us to begin to deal with deep rooted sins. Uh, one of the worst in America is racism, and uh, there's greed, there's sexual sin. We have the Me Too movement, but as a church, it's very important for us to be tuned in. And so I've invited Kevin today to give us a history of really where the church stood. Kevin, I've known for 25 years, Carrie and I, I've been friends with he and Trey for 25 years. We got hired into the uh, sports and entertainment ministry back in 1994. And uh, Kevin and Trey were leaders in the arts, media, sports, and just great mentors, always uh, just a hero and a friend and a confidant and uh, really a calming voice uh, through many crazy times in ministry. So, uh, his great children, just currently the lead evangelist at Turning Point. We all, he's a partner. They're right, our neighbors in the faith. And we love you a lot, Kevin. So I want to hand it over to you today for our lesson. Thank you for all you do. Thanks so much, Steve. What's up, Westside? Uh, so many fond memories, so many dear friends. And uh, I do want to say that uh, Steve and Carrie uh, mean the world to us. We love them. We um those of us veterans that have been around for a while, it's a badge of honor to have made it through all the twists and turns of the L.A. church history and still be somewhat in one piece. You know, uh, we've seen so much, uh, so many remarkable blessings and um, 
I was also, we were talking on our staff today, we're really eager as we journey through this, this, this sort of new civil rights era and movement, as Steve talked about, to partner with you guys. Of course, many, we've get, many of our old, our, our former members are with you and, uh, many, some of yours are with us. And so we cross pollinate already. We're, we're one big family. Uh, but we talked about getting our staffs together and getting our churches together. Just what can we do together to hold up each other's arms and to strengthen each other and to learn from each other? And so um, I'm uh, really, really happy about this opportunity. Steve asked me to speak last year, toward the end of last year, and I told him I, I would. it's always an honor to be asked. But I just said, man, I can't do it. Because I, I, I might blow your church up, so I don't want to make your job harder or your life harder just because of the evolution and the, the awakening that I think the Spirit did in me specifically in 2020. I see, I see the, the uh, church differently. I see the scriptures differently. I see Christians differently, the United States differently. And it's not as though I didn't realize many of those things, but it's one of those where you are aware, but then you see something so shocking. It just shot. It goes through all of your filters and you realize, wow, this is much more intense than I thought it was. And, uh, I need to figure out some way to, to address it. So, uh, I told them also too, this topic, it's a bit of, it's a bit scary. I said, man, I have to limit myself. I'm going to go short because I really do believe I'm going to learn more from you than you will learn from me. So I'm eager for the Q and A. Uh, I have done a lot of study and research on this topic, but I do want to say that it really lifts my spirits to see how you guys have engaged this area salvation and justice and not one or the other but both trying to be like jesus and uh it just encourages me you know honestly in different parts of our fellowship and in different parts of the capital c church there is still a resistance to the awakening that the whole world was alerted to last year and so it's encouraging to see some kindred spirits of people who are like God has brought us to this point. The Holy Spirit has a continual revelation. You know, over the past few years, Turning Point has been learning about more about walking with, being led by, giving full uh, honor to the Holy Spirit as we have traditionally done with God and Jesus. So all I'm saying is you never know what God is going to reveal to you year to year. So um, I'm looking forward to sharing Love you. Much, much love, much respects. I could mention a lot of names, but I don't want anybody. I don't want to miss someone's name and them at me later. Uh, but I do I do want to say I appreciate you, Steve. Steve's a, I always call him. We talked about you at staff today. We like he's a Boy Scout. You know, he's a he's a mature man, but he's just a pure hearted Boy Scout dude that just straight arrows and wants whatever God wants him to do. And it's so been so encouraging as well. He is, he's a really, um, he rep, he and Carrie represent, of course, Carrie's the better half. Uh, by the way, they, they converted uh, a great woman that became a Curtis Reed's wife, Kim, and we're on staff with us and we share fond memories, family connection, but it's been cool to see Steve, who is a, who has been a, a diehard, uh, really, really, uh, super committed disciple, straight arrow guy. 
But it's been cool to see him allow the spirit to help him evolve and see things uh, that he hadn't seen before. Not not saying that he wasn't right in the middle of God's will before, but that's a great example. Hopefully, the older we get, the the more open to learning we become rather than traditionally, you know, becoming crusty. So I think. Uh, you know, I want to imitate that, and I think he's a great example. So now keep our spiritual fingers crossed. I'm going to try to share my screen. That's always risky, but uh, we'll, we'll uh, ho- hopefully this PowerPoint, will, uh, this uh, keynote will work, and we'll go from there. Okay, so let me pull it up. So far, so good. Uh, and you guys see that? Okay, press play. All right, great. Thank you for the thumbs up. Um, so as we've been uh, wrestling with this issue of race and the United States and more precisely race and the American church, uh, what, what's been amazing to me is that when you when something happens in the world, sorry, I, I, I went to I advanced my screen. I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean to do that either. So let's see. Let me. How do I go back here? Nope. Okay, sorry about that. Let me start over. Um, when when there's something that happens like has happened in society, the way you study the Bible is different. And things that you have read, uh, excerpts and that you've read for years, you read them again, and if they're like you've never seen them. And, and they are more resonant, and they're more compelling. And so I just want to start with a couple of passages that have helped um, – or animate where where my head and my uh, my heart have been as far as being inspired to move ahead in this area. Uh, King Lemuel uh, and talking about all the things that his mom taught him. Proverbs thirty one, as you know, talking about the Proverbs thirty woman. But uh, in Proverbs thirty one, he said, "Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those who are crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless." And see that they get justice. And I can, I have to say, I've read that passage countless times, but after all the events of 2020, it just hit me, uh, right between the eyes that part of being a prophetic community, part of being, uh, the, the presence of God in the world is to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves and the opposite of speaking up is being silent we're going to talk a bit more about that in in a a while uh but he says speak up don't be silent ensure justice don't hope for justice don't wish for justice don't don't just pray for justice but ensure justice and i love this phrase see to it that they get justice this is the nlt trans, the new living translation but instead it's really um i think reminiscent of i mean uh it, it speaks to the original language the gist of the original hebrew that we're not supposed to be passive when it comes to justice that's the point of course uh you go on uh jesus famous uh, message to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, and of course we've read this many times. <clears throat> but uh, Jesus spoke to them and said, "Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law. And what are they? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness." He says you pra- you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat 
you you are meticulous on things that don't matter and you swallow a camel you ignore glaring needs that are staring you in the face because you are so obsessed with your lesser uh parts of your relationship with God and i know all of us can fall into that but specifically in the area of you know dealing with the more important matters of the law justice mercy am i looking out that my neighbors my fellow citizens in the church and outside of the church that they experience justice that mercy is shown and and that uh we represent a faithful community so i believe these are god's call for us to be a prophetic community i mean a prophetic yeah a prophetic community and a good samaritan society where we are not like the priest and the Levite, so full of the scriptures, but so empty of the heart of God that we walk by on the other side when we see someone suffering. And and sadly, and the church is the hope of the world. It is we are the hands and feet of Jesus, however imperfect. He is the only one that has the answer for this life and for the life after. But I have to say, those having said those things, Often the church has had a tendency to, or I shouldn't say the church, Christians in churches, some Christians in some churches have developed the habit of being able to walk by on the other side uh, when when there are issues, in uh, which we'll talk about a little later, where people are in need but feel justified because they're in their Bible. They're in, they're in the word develop. De- I, I call it, uh, we, we can develop a head in the sand hermeneutic where we, we read the scriptures in such a way that we don't feel them calling us out to, to heal in the world, but rather to stay insular. Uh, this is an excerpt from stamp from the beginning and reading stamp from the beginning. Uh, the spirit changed my life. It's one of those life-changing books, and of course, many of us have had those uh, from time to time. I'd also highly recommend reading the book *Cast: The Origins of Our Discontents* by Isabel Wilkerson. It's another life-changing book. But both of them look at um, the issue of uh, race in the United States in an, un- an unapologetic way. So I want to read this now. Full full uh, disclosure. Uh, you know what? I'm going to shrink it some because all of your faces are in front of it and I can't see it. So I'm going to then I'll put this the other the screen back up in a minute. And uh, by the way, that's a typo. Let me correct that right now. I'm going to do that right now. I feel better about myself. OK, um, excerpt from Stamp from the Beginning. Uh, Stamp from the Beginning is a book written by Ibram Kendi. And he, he it is the definitive history of racist ideas in the United States. Starting, uh, you know, going back as far as the 13th, 14th centuries. And what he does is disassemble the ideas. How did the ideas and ideology form upon which the practices of chattel slavery, racism, segregation, et cetera, happened? And so it was really fascinating. And here's one excerpt as it relates to the uh, connection of the Christian church relative to race. In 1590, Cambridge professor William Perkins published a work called Ordering a Family, which drew partially from his interpretation of the household codes found in Ephesians 6. And, of course, when you look at Ephesians 6, Paul's writing to the church there, 
Husbands treat your wives a certain way. Wives treat your husbands a certain way. Children, obey your parents. Parents, fathers don't exasperate your children. Employer, employees treat uh, people this way. Employer, employers, uh, slaves, servants, and so forth and so on. One of the things Christianity has done and, and different uh, uh, people have done through the centuries is compare chattel slavery against African Americans in the United States with slavery that is talked about in the New Covenant as though they're the same and seeing the fact that there was slavery in the New Covenant is justification for chattel slavery in um, in uh, the United States, which I think is evil and wrong. In addition to that, it's a false comparison because chattel slavery and the treatment of people who look like me was so different than what Paul was addressing. But uh, nonetheless, his interpreting interpretation of those codes led him to this conclusion. It was Perkins' claim of equal souls and unequal bodies that led Puritan preachers like John Cotton and Cotton Mather to sanction slavery. In 1663, laws prohibiting the enslavement of Christians made enslavers reluctant to baptize their slaves as it would give them grounds to sue for freedom. So in other words, there were laws on the book in the 17th century that prevented, if you were a Christian, prevented you from being a slave. But because of the underlying greed that motivated the uh, American, white American citizenry to find some way to justify slavery and have cognitive dissonance with their Christianity, they changed the law. So in 1667, Virginia ruled that baptism does not alter the condition of a person as to his bondage. So they changed the law to make these these incongruent ideas of Christian virtue and slavery work. And that long, uh, long held history of cognitive dissonance, the ability to hold conflicting views in your life. Like Thomas Jefferson is the poster boy for that. All men are created equal and I have slaves, right? And so that developing that ability to live as a contradiction to soothe your conscience to practice something that's wrong. So anyway, uh, but this is the point. Uh, Puritans and other Christian enslavers justified their actions with the, their belief in civilizing and Christianizing the world. Theorists at the time believed in equal souls and unequal bodies, which led Puritan preachers to minister to African souls and not challenge the enslavement of their bodies. So that this is part of the beginning of the thought process of Christians in the 17th century, 16th, 17th century Americas that have led us to some of the views that many Christians hold now, obviously, no one's for slavery, but but the idea of white supremacy, the idea that uh, somehow I can minister to someone's soul and still endorse mistreating their body and not uh, have that be a uh, contradiction. And so uh, I think that's an important marker to show how Christians not only did not speak out against this, but figured out a way to endorse it. Now, to be sure, there were exceptions. Um, uh, William Lloyd Garrison is, a, is an exception. 
uh, the Mennonites, the Quakers were Christian communities that vehemently, adamantly spoke against, would not have slaves, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of the other uh, parts of the, the Protestant movement, Catholics, and our restoration movement, right, Christian churches, churches of Christ, disciples of Christ, uh, there were uh, there was advocation for slavery. So uh, I think that it's important to see kind of where, where it started. Okay. All right, let's see if I can do this again. I'll, I'll expand this. <clears throat> the title stamped from the beginning comes from a speech that Mississippi Senator Jefferson Davis gave on the floor of the U.S. Senate April 12, 1860. The future president of the Confederacy objected to a bill funding black education in Washington, D.C. The government was not founded by Negroes nor for Negroes, but by white men for white men, Davis lectured to his colleagues. The bill was based on the false notion of racial equality, he declared. The inequity of the white and black races was stamped from the beginning. And so, you know, here you see. And we I, we probably know this. It you know it makes sense that this guy would hold these views because he's the president of the Confederacy. But what what is important to understand is there were thriving churches of every denomination and stripe that supported racist thinking and ideology that that sanctioned slavery rather than stand against it. The Golden Rule, the Platinum Rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Consider others better. Honor one another. I mean, uh, the whole idea of honor, honoring the image of God on another soul or another person, sadly, the church has not stood for that, but has been complicit. I love this quote. Until the story of the hunt is told by the, I'm sorry, until the story of the hunt is told by the lion, the tale of the hunt will always go, will, will always glorify the hunter. And this was a quote that was in stamp from the beginning. And what we realized, and probably some of you realize, is that we got a, a sanitized history of the United States that was not honest or accurate uh, growing up, most of us. Because, you know, we read about, uh, you know, that big, the Tulsa massacre. Remember last year, the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa massacre, and so many people you know, on, you know, around Juneteenth, I never knew about this. There's so many atrocities that most of us in our history never knew about because the history was told by the hunter rather than the lion, uh, as it were. So this book is one that changed my, uh, that the spirit changed my life through as well. And, uh, this is one that, uh, Steve, I recommended different people read. I, I, I know Steve and Carrie read it. It's heartbreaking, and honestly, leaning into this stuff, it's not for the faint of heart because it's so uh, soul-killing, so heartbreaking, so maddening. But, you know, it's better to lean in. It's also liberating and empowering when you look at the ugliness, like King said, when you when you uh, pierce the boil and all the, the, the nastiness of the, the boil comes out. And But that's the only way you can heal. And this book really helped me do some of that. So it's the color of compromise. The truth, the truth about the American church's complicity in racism. Now that's a lot to swallow, but I want to pose that he, that's his premise of the book that the American church has been complicit in racism. 
Here are some quotes from him. He says, racism never goes away. It just adapts. Okay, so there are some that you probably in our own church, maybe even some of you or some other people that think, sure, slavery was bad and Reconstruction was bad and Jim Crow was bad. But because of the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act of the mid 60s, racism doesn't exist anymore. And systemic racism is just a sort of a left wing um, conspiracy theory. Uh, but Candy posits that it doesn't go away, it just adapts and it looks different in different times, which I agree with. He says, being complicit only requires a muted response in the face of injustice or uncritical support of the status quo. We've seen this in the church for sure, where there is not, um, you know, like, and, you know, uh, there's not a strong response, but it's sort of a shrugging of the shoulders or looking the other way, or that's not our problem. We deal with the soul. We preach Jesus. We can't fix the ills of the world. And so we kind of have a muted response, uh, which is, in fact, um, you know, enabling. Uh, this is another quote from his book. All too often throughout U.S. history, white churches have chosen to practice a complicit Christianity rather than a courageous Christianity. Complicit means go along to get along, look the other way, don't be involved. Um, and courageous means talk about what's real with the risk, the very time risk. People are going to dislike you. Some people will disown you. Certain friendships can you can lose. Family relationships you can lose. People will leave your church. People will talk about you. They'll stop giving money. All of those risks, uh, are they worth being the hands and feet of Jesus and being those that promote justice uh, like Jesus did? That, that's one of the questions we've got to answer. This is another big one from him. Throughout the course of U.S. history, when Christians had the opportunity to decisively oppose the racism in their midst, they all too, all too often they chose silence. They chose passivity. The refusal to act in the midst of injustice is itself an act of injustice. Indifference to oppression perpetuates oppression. And so I believe this is true. We have to ask ourselves, is my faith community known for and am I known for not disagreeing with racism, not feeling it's distasteful or would preferring it not to be, but decisively opposing it? Is that what we are known for? Is that what I'm known for? Is that what you're known for? I love this quote. I love the church, but I hate racism. I love the church, and I want to see the church become healthier. This was Tisby's quote. He's a Christian. He's a Ph. student, Ph.D. student, and, I, and it's so cool where he says, I love the church, but I hate racism. You probably know people who feel like, I'm sick of talking about all this race stuff because all it's doing is dividing the church. We used to get along so well. We were a colorblind community, and now everybody's mad at me, and I don't know why. Uh, but he says, I love the church, but I hate racism. So the question maybe we have is, do, do, do we hate racism? Or, or do we mildly, is it mildly displeasing? Is it, um, 
not my preference, but I got bigger problems and it is what it is. And let's all get along and it's better than it was before. One more uh, kid, uh, Tisby quote. Uh, man, I hope I can. I mean, I want to. OK, let me move this so I can read this. OK, so remember his point. By the way, Tisby made a comment. He said that. Um, uh, what did he say? He said if there, you know, the black church obviously has been integral in um, civil rights through the years. But he said there would be no if there weren't racism in the white church, there would be no black church. And, you know, that's why the black church evolved and was created is because there was that. And so as he deals with racism in the 21st century, he says this Christian complicity with racism in the 21st century looks different than complicity with racism in the past. It looks like Christians responding to Black Lives Matter with the phrase all lives matter. It looks like Christians consistently supporting a president whose racism has been on display for decades. It looks like Christians telling black people and their allies that their attempts to bring up racial concerns are divisive. It looks like conversations on race that focus on individual relationships and are unwilling to discuss systemic solutions. Perhaps Christian complicity in racism hasn't changed after all. Although the characters and the specifics are new, many of the same rationalizations for racism remain. So that's a gut check. It really is. It's, okay, how, how much have we changed? How different are we really? And by the way, I want to say this is not meant to diminish or ignore all the progress that we have made in addressing this issue. We have talked more about race in 2020 and 2021 than all the previous years combined. We have read more books. We've had more hearts to hearts. We've cried more tears. We have ministered better. So I don't want to say by this that we are where we were. I'm just saying that this is a reality I think that we've got to face. Okay, so can I read a, a, little, a little bit more? Um, as we look as we look at race and the church, let's take through some years. So we read about Cotton Mather and uh, John Cotton back in the 16th century. We've heard of the Great Awakening right in the early 18th century. Uh, you know this big religious revival. George Whitfield and um, John Jonathan Edwards, two prominent theologians that have shaped, shaped our theology. Uh, both of them were okay with slaves. Jonathan Edwards owned slaves, and he's one of the giants of, uh, he's considered the greatest American theologian, uh, ever, and yet, uh, racist and had slaves. And so, uh, there's been a marrying of Christianity and racist ideas throughout our history. Of course, um, we are part of the restoration movement, and you can Google race and the restoration movement, but Two of the founders of um, the, the two most prominent founders of our restoration movement, Disciples of Christ, Christian Churches, Church of Christ, are were Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone, both of whom were slave owners in the early 19th century who did who were moved to free their slaves, but were not staunchly opposed to slavery. So you go through, obviously, the Civil War period, the antebellum period, the Civil War period, the Reconstruction period, 
uh, racism's on full display then. Then you come into the Jim Crow era of um, the uh, 20th century, and then you come to the civil rights movement of um, the 1960s and so forth. The history of the Christian church, and specifically churches of Christ, Christian churches, disciples of Christ, has been silent on the areas of social racial justice. And part of what we've wrestled with and part of what's in our DNA is we say we're apolitical. We don't want to get into politics. We want to preach the gospel. We want to deal with salvation, but we don't want to deal with justice issues, which sounds noble and super spiritual. But the truth is it masks an indifference to racism. It masks white supremacist tendencies and it masks uh, racist, soft racism or racism that's been a part of the American church. And and I'm convinced that in addition to wanting to preach the gospel and to not get involved in partisan politics, we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater, and therefore we have not dealt with moral issues and loving people and freeing the oppressed and so forth and so on. A friend of mine says there's a there's a person behind every policy. So if policies from politics make people's lives better or worse, that means I should be willing to be involved in whatever means will help people's lives improve. So the the, the clear indication of this situation is um this uh I, I this I moved by this and I want to read it. Uh, many of you have heard of the letter letter from the Birmingham jail uh by uh King. And the letter, I was going to read the letter that preceded the letter, but um, he's in he's in Birmingham in 1963. We know about the, the murder of those four black girls and the bombing of the church. And Birmingham had the record of the highest number of bombings and racial violence against its citizenry. So King and others are there to protest. And eight clergymen write a letter to him saying, we are sympathetic to your cause, but we want you to stop protesting because even though your protests are nonviolent, other people are are uh, being violent in the name of your cause. And we feel like what you're doing is untimely and unwise. So stop these protests right They're up in arms about the protests. But they're not up in arms about the bombing and murder of innocent black girls in a church. They're not up in arms about um, the the dogs being sick and the water hoses and the the vitriol and the spitting on and lunch counters and the segregated um, laws. They're not up in arms about that, but they're up in arms about not protesting. And that often has been the tendency among Christian churches. I want to read this excerpt. It's here on my uh, my um, word doc, but this is an excerpt of King's letter to uh, this group, which I think illustrates how I feel more, more than anything else regarding the church and the opportunity we have. King says, "I've almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's greatest stumbling block in striding toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner." but the white moderate who's more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with the goal you seek, but I can't agree with your methods of direct action. 
Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. I've heard numerous religious leaders of the South call upon their worshipers to uh, comply with a desegregation decision because it's law. But I have longed to hear white ministers say, follow this decree because integration is morally right and the Negro is your brother. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churches stand on the sideline and merely mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our, our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard so many ministers say those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. So here we are moving toward the exit of the 20th century with a religious community largely adjusted to the status quo, standing as a taillight behind other community agencies rather than a headlight leading men to higher levels of justice. So this statement to me encapsulates the tension that many in the Christian church community have uh, been dealing with and the sad legacy that our forebearers, right, our spiritual family, the Restoration Movement churches, churches of Christ, Christian churches, disciples of Christ, stood on the sidelines during the first civil rights, the, the civil rights movement of the 60s. Based on, hey, those are social issues. We don't want to be like those black churches. We preach the gospel. They're into the social gospel. We're into the real gospel, which is a way to be holier than thou. It's sanctimonious. And it absolves me of the responsibility of seeing to it that people have justice. It's a good Samaritan. It's a judo move by the priest or the Levite to walk by on the other side. And honestly, that is more of a history of the broader American church when it comes to the area of race. I could say a lot more about this, but I want to stop now. Um, I would say, uh, last thing I'll say is, so we come to 2020 and we're wrestling with this as a church and as individual Christians. What do we do? What do we not do? What's appropriate for me to say? What's not appropriate for me to say? Do I speak out when something's wrong? Do I remain silent? Do I look the other way when a Charlottesville happens or when a, an insurrection at the Capitol happens or when a Jacob Blake is shot or when, uh, you know, uh, a Breonna Taylor is, is shot? What, what is the right thing to do? What would Jesus do? Should I be for Black Lives Matter or against Black Lives Matter? Um, and, and so these are some of these the struggles and, and, and to, to this modern day. So what I what I believe with all my heart and what I have to do as a person, Kevin, I'm not saying what other Christians have to do, but I cannot be a Christian in whom the spirit lives 41 years. And I know that's before just after the earth cooled before most of you were born. I can't say I'm a Jesus follower. And be silent in the face of blatant, obvious injustice. That's just me. That's where the spirit has brought me. I don't know how you do it, but I, God, help me. I don't want to be on the wrong side of God or the wrong side of history 
in 2021 and shame, be embarrassed to talk to the forebearers who suffered so much more in previous American generations. Like, dude, we, we were martyred. We were lynched. We were slaves. We were, we were hosed. We, dogs were sicked on us. You can't speak up and, and get somebody mad at you that unfriends you on Facebook or someone threat, threatens to leave your church. I, I, God help me. I, I can't roll that way. I'm not, hey, I want, I've, I've, I've been here 28 years. You don't lay your, you don't give your life to a church for almost 30 years wanting people you've laid it down for to leave your church. But I'll, I'll be, well, let's just say, I am unwilling to be manipulated by somebody to say, if you lean in here, I'm leaving. Hey, I love you. But I, I got to go with, right? We got to go with what does the scripture call us to and what's the right thing to do? So, you know, you got me going a little bit. I'm going to stop now, put a, put a sock in it, and that's uh, turn it over to Steve. So thank you, guys. Kevin, thank you. Thank you for sharing your heart. I know you've been um, wrestling. I know, you know, I've been uh, I've been lamenting. I've been um, trying to. It, it, there's a heavy weight there, and uh, I know each of us that <clears throat> gave our life to Jesus. Uh, we I, I admitted it publicly multiple times. I was obtuse to the reality of the pain of my very close brothers. Uh, many, many times throughout my, my years, even as a minister, uh, just obtuse, uh, dull, not, not seeing the, the pain. And, and I'm sorry for that. Uh, and we, we've gone through a lot of transition as a church. I know I, I'm going through transition. And so, you know, I'm committed to us. You know, we're, we're disciples of Jesus here on the West Side. We're calling people to be disciples of Jesus and to love the way he loves people. And that means we care and that means we stand for righteousness and we fight and, and we even undergo persecution. And so, um, thank you for sharing. We have some great questions. I know this is deep, deep waters. I do want to call on our whole church to, um, to engage. I think the term lean in is needed. It's, you know, as your evangelist, I've, I've admitted I've been dull, uh, for, for many years, just not, not grasping the full magnitude of the pain that our black brothers and sisters feel, uh, not, not being empathetic enough to it and then not standing in the right way or caring. And, uh, and God's changing that in me and the carry and, and so many others. But I think it's a process that we're on a journey. We've got to keep doing this, but, there's going to be some battles to fight, and uh, I think it's exciting that we're disciples who gave our life to Jesus uh, to change this world. Uh, wow, we're given this opportunity to, to change the world practically in front of us right now, which is the call of the kingdom of God, saving souls. But part of that is standing in the face of opposition for, for things that bring justice to reality that we live in. So we're, we're on this journey. We're, and, uh, so I have some great questions. I want to go, I'll just go in order that they came in. Uh, the first one, I think uh, the brother said, I don't believe that America is systemically racist. I am a black man and I have never experienced any overt racism. Isn't the way to stop this perceived racism to stop? Is it to stop? To stop talking about race and evaluate people based on the content 
of their character. Okay, so that's the first question that came in, and, and so Kevin didn't want to share his name, but uh, go ahead. Uh, I really appreciate the question and the concept, and by the so I would recommend um, reading, like in Stamp from the Beginning, it covers that, and so I want to say to the brother, I appreciate you expressing that, um, and also it, it illustrates that we're not a monolith. There's no people group where everybody is the same. And uh, Stamp from the Beginning goes through different black leaders throughout a history in the United States who not only didn't believe in racism, but had a form of internalized racism and self-hate where they actually believed that the plight of the broader African-American community was the fault of, was their fault. And so ideas of assimilating into the broader white culture were seen as the African-American responsibility and not the, uh, not, not the abusers or colonizers. Um, and so I also want to acknowledge that not every black person has experienced overt racism, but I would say that I don't, I can't, I can't make my experience everybody's writ large. I haven't experienced X, so therefore X doesn't happen. That's the same thing that, that Steve talked about, which is he lived the life in America and had an experience. And he didn't experience what some of his friends of color have experienced. So therefore, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means you didn't experience it. So I guess I, what I would say to the person is one of the one of my life lessons recently is two things can be true at once. Uh, and is it possible for both the statement for systemic racism to exist and two things to be true at once? I'd also say a couple of other things. One, I've said to people, OK, I believe it exists. But let's say, do you believe that it ever existed? Do we believe that that systemic racism ever existed in the United States? I would hope that everyone would agree, we could all agree. And by the way, we live in the post-truth alternative facts, 21st century reality, right? Nothing's true. Up is down. Down is up. You can't ever know if anything's wrong, anything's racist, anything, you know, uh, good, fine people on both sides. That's the era we live in. But I would say, wouldn't we agree that slavery would be an expression of racism? Could, could we all agree that that would be a system of racism? If that's the case, then when did systemic racism evaporate? Did, when did it go away? If we can, if we can all agree that it at one point existed, then the question is, did it go away or did it just morph and adapt through time? And I, I believe there's a lot more evidence to support the latter thought. Here's one other thing I want to read quickly uh, to the to the question, but I don't want to shut the question down. Uh, I have had black some some of my black friends say I am not oppressed. I am I am the agent of my own life. I am not a victim. I I am you know responsible for my own decisions and and so forth. Feeling as though I don't I'm not a victim and and. So I'm not saying that black people don't have agency and we don't have responsibility like anybody else, but I'm saying two things can be true at one time. And I know this, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Jacob Blake, 
had one thing in common. The people on, that, that committed the insurrection on January 6th and killed the cop and all, all the people that were screaming about Black Lives Matter and talking about Blue, Blue Lives Matter and, hey, all lives matter and Blue Lives Matter, you haven't heard any of those people condemn the people that murdered that cop. And what was what was what was the through line there? It was race. So I'm saying I, I'm I, I'm not buying that it doesn't exist. But here's Robin D'Angelo, who wrote White Fragility, uh, wrote this that I think could be helpful to answer this question. She said race scholars use the term white supremacy to describe a sociopolitical economic system of domination based on racial categories that benefit those defined and perceived as white. The system of structural power privileges centralizes and elevates white people as a group. If, for example, we look at the racial breakdown of the people who control our institutions, we see telling numbers from 2016. So here are stats from 2016 to 2017. Ten richest Americans, 100 percent white. U.S. Congress, 90 percent white. U.S. governors, 96 percent white. Top military advisors, 100 percent white. President and vice president, 100 percent white. U.S. House Freedom Caucus, 99 percent white. Current U.S. presidential cabinet, 91 percent white. People who decide which TV shows are we see, 93 percent white. People who decide which books we read, 90 percent white. People who decide which news is covered, 85 percent white. People who decide which music is produced, 95 percent white. People who directed the 100 top grossing films of all time worldwide, 95 percent white. Teachers, 82 percent white. Full-time college professors, 84 percent white. Owners of men's professional football teams, 97 percent white. So. When you look at that inequity, do you draw the clue conclusion that there is an inherent inherent acumen or intellectual superiority of white people? Is that how you would is that what that proves? Or are there systematic things put in place and that have advantaged a group and disadvantaged an other? I believe there's a lot of evidence, but I want to keep I, I appreciate the courage to ask the question. And I'm not mad at you. Thanks, Kevin. Um, I just want to say that I think there's uh, if I can say I'm aware of my own. Well, I'm becoming aware, but that's the whole issue is a lot of times we're not this unconscious bias does exist. We did a class on that. It's in us. It's, it's ingrained in us. Um we have biases. All of us have different biases based on our, our story of our origin and our experiences. Uh, there's lots of nuanced biases. Um, the pictures you see of, you know, just the, what's the classic family look like and, and all these things, um, they, you know, they're evolving, but, but they've, they've been uh, told from one side. And so I know it's in me. I mean, I want to say I, I, I do think our system has that in it. In the church, it's just part of our process to root it out. Part, part of our process as disciples is, you know, we live a life of repentance, which is we can say, wow, that stinks. That's been going on. I see that. Wow, I need to change with no fear of losing our identity because we have Christ. Our identity is Christ. Our identity is in Jesus. So we can admit there are there are unconscious biases in all of us. And if they come out, uh, we don't have to be afraid to talk about that church. We don't have to be afraid to have healthy dialogue, but know that Christ 
uh, he, he brings us the hope to be different. But we got to admit when, when they're there, and um, they're there. I see them. Some haven't been affected by them as severely as others. But so thank you, Kim. Next question. Thank, what you, thank question you, guys. Thank you, Steve. Okay, next question coming in um, is Chuka asks, beyond capitalism-centered greed, uh, shown by taking advantage of slave labor, what else do you think may have motivated Christians to inherently favor racism? Thank you, Chuka. Um, and thank you, Cindy. Uh, I, I, think, I think the bottom line was greed. I think that was the main thing. But as well, I think we see it in all of us. There's, a, there's an inherent desire in, in people to be, to be special, to be better than, you know, we, there, there's a sense of we always want to know who's the best singer, who's the best athlete, who's the best in school, who's got the highest. So we, there's a sense of inherent comparison. And if there's an interesting study about, you know, race was created, the whole concept of race was not something that's always been there. It's a false construct because 99.9% of our DNA is the, are the same. That's also in stamp from the beginning. But it was a way to categorize people uh, as a part of colonization of the Americas, and therefore we are inherently superior and some are inherently inferior. So I think there's a desire, um, Chuka, I think in some cultures that sense of feeling superior we we want to we want to figure out a way to be superior if you look at nazi germany for instance right that that was economically driven but it was also this sense of i would say malignant narcissism the inherent sense of i'm superior so I think that lies at the root of uh, – that. that's part of it. But that, I think that's a great question. Thanks, Kevin. We have a bunch of questions um, I want to continue on here. Um, all right. Um, we get a question from Elise. She says, can you talk about how you have observed and experienced racism and their injustice within the churches of Christ and how it has evolved or improved? And how have you persevered, thrived, and been an example in this environment as an African-American male and leader within our fellowship and movement? Well, thank you, Elise. Hey, Elise, did you get your 20-year clock? <laughs> I can't see her. Did she? I don't think so. Oh, not yet? Okay. We love you. We, it's, on, it's, it's on the way. She's like, hey, I, I like the West Side better, but I still want my clock. We're like, we got you. We love you. <laughs> Just kidding. Anyway, um, I would say that uh, my parents raised me. Uh, w w race was not weaponized in my family. And I grew up with the ethic of treating everybody with respect. And so although they were obviously recipients of racism, they they are, I mean, victims of it. They put in us, my brother and me, the idea that you, you've got to deal with the world as it is and you determine what your life's going to be like. So I think there's a good foundation there. Uh, I was moved by, and I'll have to say converted back in the day, uh, our, our movement in our church. I mean, I, I didn't experience overt racism in our church. I, I, I really don't think I have, honestly, Elise. Um, I think everybody has biases. 
But I'm saying that my, you know, that's the beauty of our church and fellowship is we're, we're a mixed up group of people in every way. And we, we vibe with everybody. We rock with everybody. So that has been most of my experience. What I will say is that I have been conditioned to accept unfair treatment as normal. So the times I've been racially profiled, I have not shared those with most of my friends in the church. Uh, times I have shared, I have gotten that, you know, previous to 2020, that dismissive, are you sure you weren't doing something wrong? Did you have a hood on? And were you, were you acting suspicious? That kind of thing. Uh, that white, it was more for white fragility, uh, response than overt racism. So, um, you know, uh, but I, I'm not, I'm different now. Like I'm not going to do that anymore, but I just th- thought, Hey, deal with your stuff. Everybody's got their stuff, deal with it and keep moving and don't be a victim and don't weaponize race. Um, so I think that's that's how. But I would say now I have to. The only way I can function is I call it out. I'm not going to enable white fragility. I'm not going to. Somebody says something that's inappropriate. That's not cool. You know, whereas before I would have overlooked it. Now I got to say, no, you know, that's not cool. And here's why. And be willing to lose some friends over it. Uh, You know, and I guess feeling too like, you know. I'm trying to live for God. My primary identity is is a Jesus follower. I've tried to do that at least. But I also I'm embarrassed and ashamed to say I have not I have been anti-racist, but I have not been as anti-racist as I should have been uh in the name of trying to get along with everybody and try. It's hard. I mean, you know, you're leading a rainbow our, our group is 30% white, 30% black, 30% Latino pre-covid. Who knows what we are post-covid? I mean, during COVID, I don't know, but but pre-covid. Um and I want to treat everybody on the basis of who they are. So it's been imperfect. I know this 2020 changed me. And I am like God help me. I'm, I'm, I want to be the most intense anti-racist dude you ever met. Um, so and one other thing I'll say is I have marched before. Uh, I have been in, in, you know, marches against the Ku Klux Klan where you're, where you're in these rural southern towns and you are within feet of vicious, hateful, racist, Ku Klux Klan people, which it's different when you read about it in a book versus when you actually experience it close to your skin. So I, I feel like I have represented through the years, but I guess I've tried not to weaponize that in the church. If that makes sense. Thanks. Just so you know, Lisa, she loves you and she did get her globe. <laughs> I love her, too. For a small fee, I'll see. I'll talk to the person in charge. Maybe we can expedite the, the process, though. <laughs> Okay, so Tim asked this question. Uh, Jamar Tisby wrote, the refusal to act in the midst of injustice is itself an act of injustice. Indifference to oppression perpetuates oppression. So one, are there different ways to act that are acceptable, or do we all need to act the same way to show solidarity and thus push for change? That's one. Two, in what different ways did Jesus deal with the rampant injustice oppression in his day? That's great. Um, so I would say to the first question, 
all of us have the spirit of God living in us. And I think we all have to ask the question, God, let me, let me, what, what does speaking out for justice, ensuring injustice, fighting against oppression, give me, give me what you believe, what that is for me. And I don't think it's a, a one size fits all. For me, Kevin, separating immigrant children from their parents at the border was evil. I should have Kevin spoken out publicly in the church and online. This is evil and wrong. I did not. If that were to happen, if that had happened in 2020, I would have. So ever since then, I speak out in the church. I, I posted about the insurrection. So for me, I'm going to speak publicly. And of course, that invites a lot of trolls, a lot of hate. I mean, some love too, but that's all right. So for me, I do that. I, I, um, invest in and volunteer with organizations that promote justice. I support Black Lives Matter wholeheartedly. I have, uh, I admire them and I'm not a Marxist and I believe in the nuclear family. I have a nuclear family. I don't agree with all their tenets, but I think they're heroic. Uh, they're up for a Nobel Peace Prize and they, they have done more to care for the bodies of black people than thousands of Christians in churches who are hypocritical and cowardly. So I support them. So that's another way you can do it. Um, what was the second question? Um, in what way did Jesus? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, that's a great question. Justice and, and oppression. Yes, I, I really appreciate that question. I will say that uh, some Many, all of us wrestle with, well, if I, I can't speak out against injustice or I shouldn't, I shouldn't call the former president a racist and a narcissist and someone that has caused death of hundreds of thousands of people because I'm the honor of the emperor and Jesus didn't call out Caesar. Uh, I, so, or, or I shouldn't say the insurrection was evil and, and showed uh, white supremacy and, and white privilege and Christian nationalism. Uh, or I, I shouldn't say that um, Breonna Taylor being shot in her bed by a cop who wasn't and, and with no accountability was wrong and evil and, and uh, the, pop, the, the laws need to be changed. I, I can't feel good about doing that because Jesus didn't do that, so I shouldn't do it. Jesus didn't vote. Uh, Jesus didn't go on a protest march. Uh, he said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, give to God what's God's. Uh, but he did touch the leper. He did cry with Mary and Martha. He did, uh, speak to and, um, minister to the marginalized. He did call out the religious leaders of their day for their hypocrisy as sons of hell. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, you know, in, in, in Matthew 23, he said he came to release the oppressed. He said he came to promote to, 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 uh, you know, uh, in the name of justice. And so I'm not, I don't want to make a judgment here, but what I want to say is I don't think Jesus operating in first century Rome is a get out of responsibility free card for me as an American citizen, not 
speaking out against what's wrong and standing up for what's right. If that were the case, then then I think the most exemplary Christians of the civil rights area, Martin Luther King, John Lewis, then they were wrong. Like, was King was King wrong because Jesus didn't, uh, you know, hold a hold a big speech talking about racial equality at the temple? Then then is what he did wrong, or shouldn't he not have done it because Jesus didn't do it? Uh, that that's what I see is it, I, I try I guess what I would say is I hope Jesus example motivates us to love like he did and I hope we don't use it as a, a false equivalence the a false equivalence as a way to lessen my responsibility in the world in which I live and I like to use the, the Christians of the civil rights movement as examples to me of here are people in my setting, in my situation, doing the right thing. And I would rather be a Martin Luther King than a Billy Graham, although Billy Graham served God. But for me, I think it's both and. I think it's salvation and it's looking out for the soul and the body. And a third of Jesus ministry was healing people, caring about people's physical reality. So that's what I would say. We have quite a few more questions that came in, but for time's sake, we like to end uh, right about now at nine o'clock. And um, you've done, I know you've shared your heart, you know, Kevin shared a lot of these thoughts with the whole LA staff and uh, we're on this journey and I, I, on the West side, I want us to lean in. I know uh, for some, this is challenging. I know there are, um, there's questions that with regard to, uh, you know, we're multiracial. Uh, there's Asian, there's Hispanic, and there's oppressive issues both in those communities that ha- have to be addressed. And, and I think that's part of what we do, church. We love each other and we embrace each other. Um, I, I think God has allowed the world to be sensitized um, uh, more, more, more than in my lifetime, this, this time the most sensitized time to some of the, the plights of African Americans. That's not to... Um, minimize the other issues that exist as christians i want to call on us to care we have to care and grow in our love the mission of disciple making does not preclude the mission of righting wrongs in our culture around us Um, so you you can in the, the kingdom it calls us to do both to do both and we can do both and we will do both and we will try to establish the kingdom of god uh, a piece of it, because we're not going to establish it completely until he returns, and then he'll fix things. So one of the questions that came in, we don't even have time to answer this, but if you want to have a closing comment, will racism ever be eradicated? If you want to have a closing comment on that, Kevin. Okay. Thank you guys for listening. And I know this is hard. We've been wrestling, just for you to know, we've been have we've been going through it on our staff, because our staff is diverse and and it's hard, you know. It's hard. What's what's too much? And 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 anyway. So um. Wow. I don't. Here's what I'll say. I I think we have a chance to move the needle, or as Steve Jobs would say, make a dent in the universe. I I would say that 2020 and the generation of young people. On the streets, when we were marching, we'd see all these 
people of every background on the streets. I think there's more hope. I think I think racism and white supremacy have been radicalized among a young generation. And I also think, uh, you know, uh, racial justice advocacy has been uh, created in a whole nother generation. So I think there's more hope for it in the next generation. I don't know if we'll eradicate it, but here's what I'll say. If I could, if, if my daughter's kids, if my daughter doesn't have to have the same talk with her son, if she eventually has one, then my mom had to have with me about the police. To me, that's a win. And that's worth, that's worth fighting for. So. Amen. Kevin, love you guys. Uh, Thank you. Would you be okay if people whose questions didn't get answered, could they email you? All right. If you guys yes. can email Kevin. Please do. I, and actually I could, you know, I could, um, I don't know. I, I I would love to figure out some form where we could be like, like whatever questions come in, everybody could see them who wants to, and we could go back and forth like a, I don't know, maybe a Facebook page or a Google Doc or something. But yeah, I'm wide open to that. Just give me a minute. Be gracious, because I got you know, there's a lot of irons in the fire, so I may not get back to you within the the second. 10 seconds after you hit me, but please do don't let a question go unasked, please. And stay at the table. If I made you mad, I can hear it and we can talk about it. I love you. I really do stay at the table. Send me your emails. Kevin at turningpointla.org. You've just listened to the West side podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit the or laicc.net.